Okay, good. Well, we open up our eyes, and what do we see before us? This is child number two's reaction. This is Rory, who said, well, I was hoping it would be a girl, but he is not. And then, finally, there's uh, Brother John, who's two years old. And I, I, I think you can see his mixed response here. Because <laughs> on one hand, he's recognizing him, placing his hand upon his little brother's head, blessing him. But on the other hand, his eyes tell a completely different story. It's like he's realizing that this is competition, that I will do battle, mortal combat with this younger brother for the rest of my life. So all of this is what John, I believe, is soaking in at this traumatic moment for him. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. Then, we, um, so I'm hoping I'm going up tomorrow to see the Chandler family and see my grandson, new grandson for the first time. So, back to business here at Bear Creek Bible Church. So what we're doing is we're starting our 44th book of 66 as we plan to go through the whole Bible. So we're two-thirds of the way now as we will wrap up the book of Micah in a, in a couple months. And so you can see the plan that we've had that's unfolded before our eyes over the last 30 years. We um, started a series called Profit and Loss uh, with three minor prophets from the Old Testament, um, Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah. And so we finished Joel last week. And the reason why I chose that name for the series, Profit and Loss, is because if you don't listen to the prophet, you will lose. (laughs) And unfortunately, Israel didn't listen well enough, and they lost big time. And you'll learn more about that in a few minutes. And so we'll start off with kind of an overview of the Old Testament. And every time we start an Old Testament book, I go through this because repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is a great teacher, right? So I want you to understand to get kind of a framework of the Old Testament. So that way, when you hear a message, when you study the Bible yourself, you kind of know where it fits in, and it makes a whole lot more sense when we know how a particular passage fits into the whole picture. So we're going to spend just a couple minutes looking at the the Old Testament from 30,000 feet. So there are nine periods in the Old Testament, and they're pretty discernible. So the first is where it all begins is creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God rallies an identifiable people group, an ethnic group called the Jews. And so he, he, makes, he makes a covenant with their leader, Abraham, um, a nation that he will build through Abraham and his offspring. And then the patriarchs begin. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then leading to Joseph, and then to escape a situation of, of uh, lack of food and starvation, the, this little nation moves to, to Egypt. This family, I should say, moves to Egypt to get food there. And they stay there and they become slaves. And then they are eventually led out of slavery through the ministry and work of Moses. Okay, you all know his name. And then the fourth period of Old Testament history is the conquest. So, so they're released from slavery in Egypt and then they travel through the desert for 40 years, and then God gives them the land flowing with milk and honey through the ministry of Joshua. Right after Moses dies, Joshua takes over and then gets into the land of Canaan and conquering it, going into the center, then the north and the south, 
and winning victory after victory through natural and supernatural means. Then there's the period of the judges. This is the type of government. It, you could say it's even a representative form of government or a Republican form of government. That's Republican with a small r. It's a type of government, uh, kind of an indirect democracy. And so Israel has representatives. And um, then Israel wanted to be just like everybody else. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And they said, we don't want to have judges anymore. We want to have kings. We want to have a monarchy. And so this is filed under the category of be careful what you ask for because Israel got a king and his name was Saul and he was not a good man. But then their second king, King David, turned out to be really their best king. This is the pinnacle of the Israelite experience is through the wonderful ministry and leadership of King David. And then after David passed away, then Solomon, his son, took over. And after Solomon died, then the kingdom divided. One of the compelling reasons why Israel divided, among several different reasons, but it was a situation of overtaxation. And so Israel divided Judah to the south and Israel to the north, divided up into those two nation states. And then eventually, because of rebellion, because of Israel's determination to follow after the false gods of the Canaanites, and for other reasons, um, Israel became weak. And so the north was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the south eventually succumbed to the power of the Babylonian Empire in 586, about 140 years later. So Israel was gobbled up and brought into exile. Then, through the wonderful ministry of, 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 uh, of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, then Israel got to return to the land, and that's the final stage or the last period of Old Testament history that we see in God's Word. And so those are the nine periods of Old Testament history. So just a couple other things to look at. First of all, the prophet Micah uh, was probably the second minor prophet that wrote to Judah, which is the southern kingdom. You can see there were other prophets as well. You had the major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But then Joel was the first one. He probably wrote around 820, 830 B.C., 820, 830 B.C. But then um, Micah came right after him. He probably wrote between 700 and 750 years before Christ. Okay, so he was, we're going in chronological sequence here for once. And then, here's another chart that's, I believe, helpful. It shows the prophets who wrote to Israel in the north through the divided kingdom and also the prophets who wrote to Judah in the bottom timeline. And you can see that Joel is there and then Micah is shortly after him. Then, another helpful way to wrap our brains around what's going on in the Old Testament is just remembering a few dates and a few names. And it's pretty simple. So you see the chart between Israel and Judah. They're the divided kingdom once again from this previous graph. See that there on the bottom. And But then if we go all the way back to the time of Abraham, who lived approximately 2,000 years B.C., um, and, of course, the numbers decline as you move forward in time because you're going from 2,000 to zero. And then, of course, the numbers ascend after we get to A.D. Um, but 2,000 years before Christ, we have the dominant figure of Abraham. 
But then roughly, and again, these are just rounded off numbers. That way they're easier to remember. 1500 is the man Moses. That's about the time that he lived. And then if you move forward in time about 500 more years, we have David as the dominant figure. So you have Abraham, Moses, and David. And then if you get to about 500 years before the time of Christ, you have the dominant figure of Daniel. So Abraham was 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, Moses was approximately 1,500 years before Christ. David, King David, was about 1,000 years before Christ. And Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was about 500 years before Christ. So if you can remember those four dates, 500, 1,000, 1,500, and 2,000, and those four men, you've got a really good framework to understand the big picture of the Old Testament. I think that's doable for all of us. So that way, when we hear a message, it's like, oh, that fits into here, or that fits into here. Those are the issues that Israel was dealing with in this time period, or this was the condition of Israel during that time period. That's something that is um, attainable for every person in this room or every person watching through live streaming right now. And so those are helpful dates in the Old Testament. Um, What about some observations and outline of Micah? Well, I really have enjoyed studying Micah on my own in preparation for this sermon series. In fact, I think I'm going to really enjoy meeting him one day and interacting with him because he, as all the prophets do, they have their own spin, they have their, their, their own focus and emphasis uh, compared to all the other prophets. And so what are some observations about Micah? Well, he was born in a town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so it's the town of Morasheth Gath right there, which is interesting. It borders Gaza, and we hear a lot about Gaza these days, right? And so Moresh uh, Gath is only about 25 miles south of Jerusalem or southwest of Jerusalem. And then about if you go 25 miles more southwest from Moresh Gath, you are in Gaza or the present day Gaza Strip. So we're talking about a real small piece of real estate here. Um, Israel is even smaller than my home state of New Jersey. I mean, in New Jersey, you could drive from one end to the other in about two and a half, maybe three hours if the traffic's really bad. And so it's a small place. And Israel is the same way. It's a lot of people bunched into a pretty small piece of land. And so those are some observations about the map. But then, as we continue on with this chart, it says he lived the same time as the prophets Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah. Uh, which would be the first half of, or actually the second half of the uh, 700s, 700 years before Christ. About 750 to 700 is when the prophet Micah lived and wrote. And that's about the same time that those three prophets as well. In fact, it's very possible that he knew the prophet Amos because Amos was from Tekoa, which is only a few miles from the prophet Micah's hometown. So like Joel, he predicted the Assyrian invasion of Israel, which is something that a lot of the prophets warned about. If you keep sinning Israel, northern kingdom, the Assyrians are going to come and conquer you. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And of course, Joel prophesied that about a hundred years into the future, but Micah, he prophesied it, and it actually came into fulfillment in his lifetime. So he wrote primarily to the common people of Israel. So if Micah lived today, he would be what we would call a populist, somebody who's skeptical of any large organization 
or governmental entity. He is a populist. He's a person who is the common man. In fact, I called uh, this particular sermon today, I feel like a compulsion, I have to name every sermon, you know, I call him the blue-collar prophet. So he's kind of the Larry the Cable guy of Old Testament prophets, I guess you could say. So he wrote primarily to the common people of Israel. He criticized the leadership of Israel, the religious and political leadership of Israel. In fact, his words were very influential. And he's, even though he was a writer to the common man, this guy was a literary genius. And I'll show you an example of his literary genius in the last half of of chapter 1. And so Jeremiah, Matthew, and Jesus quote the prophet Micah. So moving right along, we like to always have an outline of the book, so that way we have a shot at understanding what the book's about, because... um, We've been going through quite a few books here at Bear Creek Bible Church, not just here in the auditorium during worship services, but we also feature expositional studies in our Calibrate classes and many of the flock groups as well. Our small group ministry here at BCBC also study books of the Bible. I believe that it is the most natural and organic way of understanding what God wants to tell us. So we study book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. There's nothing wrong about topical studies or sermons, but 95% of what you're going to get here in this auditorium are expositional studies because it is the most natural way to understand the heart of God and what he wants to communicate to his people. So that's the way we study it, with context as a primary driver in our ability to interpret and understand what God wants to tell us. So the outline of Micah, first of all, you have the future judgment for past sins and Lousy leaders, there's going to be future judgment because you allowed this to take place, Israel. You didn't do anything about it. You didn't repent. You didn't come back to be with God and to understand God's heart, to give your hearts to him. Um, The second part of the book of Micah is future good things because of past promises. And this is one of the really coolest parts of the book of Micah because it tells us about the coming Messiah, and so when I was doing my um, sermon scheduling, I usually try to get about four to five months ahead. And as I was figuring which passage is going to connect which, which date, uh, so that way I can give it to Travis, so that way he can put together a song package for that particular Sunday, and I give him just a basic theme of what I believe the passage is about even before I study it. But anyway, as I was putting passages to particular dates, it just worked out great to where we're going to talk about Micah 4 and 5, which talks about Jesus, the coming Messiah, will be preaching and teaching and learning about that during the Christmas season. It was like, that's so cool the way that worked out. And I didn't plan it that way, it just flowed naturally. So anyway, future good things because of past promises. So chapters 4 and 5, some of the verses there are going to be recognizable to you. The third part of the outline of Micah is that we are called to repent for our present sins because of who God is and also his works. So there's a little bit of overlap with Joel, but not a whole lot. Some of the same themes, but again, just like all of the other Old Testament prophets and writers, um, they have their own spin, their own way of saying things and communicating. So that is, what about the themes and purposes of the book of Micah? Well, Micah wrote in detail about the Messiah and the character of Yahweh. So, you know, the Bible, it doesn't say... Behave right. 
It always gives us a reason why and how we should make right choices in life. From an Old Testament perspective, it is based upon our behavior and our transformation and our growth is based upon the character of God. Again and again, Joel did this, Micah does it as well. They all do it. So Micah wrote in detail about who the Messiah is and the character of Yahweh. So the true ruler, the best ruler, is revealed. He's shown to us, especially in chapters 4 and 5. But then, on the opposite side of the coin, the false rulers are exposed. And that's the second bullet point. Micah cared about justice and he criticized oppression corruption, materialism, idolatry, immorality, and poor leadership. So the true ruler is revealed, but the false rulers are exposed. And so that is Micah's perspective as he sees the current leadership of Israel as false leaders. The political as well as the religious leaders are not good men. The third bullet point, like Joel, Micah wrote about God's justifiable discipline of Judah. But he saw God fulfilling his promises to the nation. And that God has two responses to human sin. One is he offers a way of forgiveness. And so that's why the Messiah is sent. So he could come, live amongst us, serve us, but also die for us. And so by faith in Jesus, and we believe in the Messiah who has already come, Jesus Christ and his first coming, came and died for us as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. God's word tells us that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. Pretty straightforward. And that is also confirmed by the rest of the New Testament. That is how a person is redeemed. By faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so that is one response that God has to human sin. He gives us a way out. He pays for our ability to be forgiven. He pays for our sins. But the other way that God deals with human sin is that he judges it. If it's not already forgiven, he judges it. One way or another, it's going to be judged. Either he judges his son as a substitutionary atonement for our sin, which he's already done, and we accept that atonement. We accept that forgiveness. We accept that reconciliation and reconnection back to God. Or one day we will be vulnerable for the ultimate judgment at the great white throne judgment. It's one or the other. Those are the two ways that God deals with human sin. And so, like Joel, Micah wrote about God's justifiable discipline of Judah, but saw God fulfilling his promises to the nation. So Israel deserved to be disciplined. They deserve to be judged. But yet, God will do that. In fact, he'll even use foreign powers, foreign nations, to issue forth his justice and his discipline. But then, ultimately, God will fulfill his already made promises to Israel. We saw that pattern in Joel. We'll see it again in Micah, except expressed in a different way. Lastly, Micah lamented because Israel and Judah would not listen to his warnings. That is a feature of the book of Micah that I want you to absorb. And we'll see that in a few minutes in Micah chapter 1. That Micah expresses his emotions, his deep feelings, because of his frustration and his grief that Israel would not listen to him. 
And they would listen to the other prophets as well. And so they stayed on their path of false worship, of idolatrous worship, and that in the immorality that came with that false worship. And then one day they would be disciplined by God. And most certainly that happened even in his own lifetime. So today's passage is Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And let's turn there in our Bibles if we're not there already. And I would like to read the first seven verses. And then we'll just march through this together. So the first seven verses of Micah chapter 1 say this. The word of the Lord given to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. Look. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. Uh, What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all of her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. So he reveals here the time period during those three kings, which is between 700 and 750 B.C. That's the time that Micah lived and worked. But note to whom this prophecy is directed. It's not just to Israel. It's not just to Judah, although it's to them primarily. It's to all of the earth. God is making known the discipline of his own people to every living, breathing human being, to all the peoples of the world. I am the God who will judge. I am a just God. And I am also a God who is transparent. I don't hide my activities. I let everybody see what's going on. Now, all of the gods of the other ancient peoples during that time, they always spun things to make their people look really good. But Yahweh was unique in this feature, that he allowed the curtains to be pulled back on the discipline of his own people. The first time I went to Israel, we had a Palestinian Christian bus driver. And we had a Jewish Christian tour director. And these two guys got along really well. They're both brothers in Christ. Their families had social events together. But when we first met this Palestinian Christian bus driver, he said this to us. And I'll always remember it because he was like a really quiet, laid-back guy. This is the only time he ever like said anything with firmness to us. Because that you know, wasn't his job to begin with. It was the tour director's job. His job was just to drive the bus. And he was a really good driver, too. But he said, I just want to let you know that not all Palestinians are Muslims or terrorists. You know, 10% of the Palestinian people are Christians. So we're your brothers and sisters. Don't ever forget that. And I haven't. 
And so, if I were to witness to a Palestinian person who is not a Christian already, I would have them read the book of Micah. Because Micah says, here, look, I might have my identifiable people group as the Hebrews or the Jews, but I will discipline them. I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to treat them like babies, I'm not going to give them everything that they, they want. I am going to treat them with justice, just like now I treat you with justice, as I allow you too into the family of God through the ecclesia or through the church that is made up of Jews and believing Gentiles. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And so Micah would be a great book to use for Palestinian evangelism. So it is to all the nations. Here he, from the get-go, he teaches us about the nature of God and his way. Micah emphasizes that God is a universal God who rules all nations and all peoples. There is no person or thing or people group that is outside of his control. So his rule is characterized by a just administration that is applied to everyone. God is a witness to the actions of the people in every nation. So nothing can escape his notice or his just response. God's power is also so great that it overwhelms even the most solid and permanent aspects of nature. He comes down, and here Micah uses a... uh, uh, a theomony, which which shows a or a yeah theom, theophany theophany, which is basically taking the actions of God and kind of translating it into human actions. So you have God come down from his heavenly temple, and what does he do? Like a giant, he walks from mountain to mountain, and when he walks, those mountains melt like hot wax. That's the picture that he creates in the minds of the readers of the first chapter of the book of Micah. And so God comes from his dwelling place to judge even his own people. He talks about the high places. That is where the sacrifices to false gods are offered. And um, Micah preaches. But he preaches about these high places. In fact, this is an actual high place in the northern tip of Israel. In fact, if you just walk a few feet to your right, you would be standing on a small hill. You'd actually literally be able to see Lebanon. That's how far north we are. We're all the way at the tip in that purple area there. That is Dan, the place of Dan. One of the high places, one of the altars of the people of Israel during the time of Micah. And what did they do there? They offered sacrifices to Baal and Molech. This is what the prophets continually railed against. Why are you offering sacrifices to false gods? From the Hebrew mindset during this time period, it was like, well, we're going to make sure we check all of our boxes because Yahweh, it's not like we don't want you because we love your covenant and we respect you. Kind of. But we want to make sure that all of our bases are covered, you see. So we're going to continue to offer sacrifices to you for the holding back of our sin. But then we also want to offer sacrifices to Baal and Molech. 
Because we hear um, that they offer a lot of fertility to our livestock and also good crop production. So we're going to kind of do the best of both worlds, Yahweh. And this is what the prophets again and again criticized. And that is an actual place where sacrifices were made to the false gods of the Canaanites. Of course, the metal structure there wasn't there, but some of the stones, I believe, are the originals for that that altar or that high place because they would be typically done on a hill or a mountain. So then, in verse 5, the reason why they were being judged is because of verse 5. And there it says, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So there were false sacrifices everywhere. The capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, was Samaria. But the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, was Jerusalem. And so everywhere he turned, people were offering false sacrifices. They were worshiping the false gods. Verses 6 and 7 tell us about the judgment and the destruction of those idols. Verse 7, look what it says there. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all of her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. So the Assyrians will take the wages that the Israelites paid the prostitutes of the, of the temple of Baal and use those resources for their own idolatrous worship. And so ultimately, this would lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom, and that would be fulfilled in 722 B.C. So Micah, what does he do? What's his response to this really bad news? These continually negative reports that everywhere, the Israelites are worshiping false gods, and they're rejecting Yahweh's covenant although they think they're not. They think they're just covering all their bases. But yet they're doing exactly the opposite of what God told them to do. And so Micah begins to grieve. And um, his emotions run very deep. Look at verses 8 and 9 say, it says, Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked, I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And so then he uses a literary device that's kind of like a pun. Do you guys like puns? Yeah. (laughs) So here, you can insert your own dad joke. All right. I'm not going to give any because I don't want to suck all the oxygen out of the room. But what he does here now is he lists 11 cities and then he kind of uses uh, what words those uh, cities sound like in Hebrew, meaning their meanings. And I'll explain what I mean. So it would be like Washington is all washed up. Watertown is covered with water. Or Waterloo has met its Waterloo. He uses word plays like that on these 11 cities. So look, look at a few of them here. In verse 10, it says, Tell it not 
in gaff. Weep not at all. And the Hebrew word for tell sounds like gaff. So, tell it not in tell. Weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, in verse 10, that word Beth Ophrah means the house of dust. Let the house of dust roll in dust. Verse 11, pass on in nakedness and shame. You who live in Shafir, and the word Shafir there, it sounds like the Hebrew word for pleasant, fashionable beauty. But here it's pass it on in nakedness and shame, the opposite of the most up-to-date fashion in view of beauty. Those who live in Zanon will not come out. And the word Zanon sounds like the Hebrew word for coming out. Bethazel is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. The word Bethazel means the house of taken away. And so its protection is taken away. Those who live in Morath, which sounds like the Hebrew word for bitter, writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, which sounds like the Hebrew word for team, like a team of horses, harness the team to the chariot, because you're going to be moving along. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgression of Israel was found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath, which is Micah's hometown. The word Morasheth Gath sounds like um, to be married. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath, wedding gifts. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive. It sounds like, Akzib sounds like the Hebrew word for deception. So the town of deception will prove to be deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marishah. And the word for Marishah sounds like the Hebrew word for conquer. Um, he who is the glory of Israel will come to Adalum, and that is the place that David fled to. So the glory of Israel will go to Adalum. So verse 16, shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. You're going to lose everything, including your hair. It'll be a disaster. You're going to lose everything. So Micah uses these series of puns or word plays to communicate to the reader that all of these cities, all of these cities are going to end in calamity. And all of them are in Judah, in that brown area right there, the northern part of that brown area. So Micah openly grieved. There's a lot of grieving in the Bible. Sometimes as Americans, we just want to be happy all the time, and so we kind of overlook it. But the Bible contains a lot of authentic grief and mourning. Jeremiah um, grieved. Jesus, in John chapter 11, he wept bitterly. He wept with kind of an overtone of anger because he saw his good friend Lazarus dead as a doornail. And Jesus knew that he was going to resuscitate Lazarus in a short time. But yet Jesus still grieved. He wept. He cried because he saw the result of all thousands of years of human sin. 
result in physical death. And he wept. Paul wept in Romans chapter 9 for his nation Israel because they just refused again and again and again to see that Jesus is the true Messiah. So the messenger, the prophet, preaches the message and it is not received. And when a prophet preaches a message, a message that is vital for the survival of a nation and it is not received, it is a reasonable thing for that messenger to grieve. The sorrow is for the impending judgment. So with these prophets, all of these people of integrity, Jeremiah, of course, our Lord, and Paul, and Micah as well, and all the other prophets and all the other apostles, with all of these men, there was no change in theology, no rationalization, no downsizing the pain and the, the, the specter of, of people spending eternity separated from the source of life and light and love. God is holy. Man is not. God provides the solution. But if man does not accept that solution, if people do not respond to the gospel... They do not respond to the substitutionary atonement, to the forgiveness that is offered. They do not respond. How can we do anything but grieve? We can try to take the blue pill and pretend it all doesn't exist or it's not true or it's irrelevant or somehow we've misinterpreted or somehow maybe universalism is true. But Scripture clearly states that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. But we don't write off the pain and suffering to a sovereign God who will somehow figure it out, and maybe we've got it wrong. He's already figured it out, <laughs> and many will be eternally separated. Universalism is a lie from, truly from, the pit of hell. So we feel agony, we feel exasperation, we feel grief over the calamities and the coming disasters of life. I believe there are two ways that we can take this. First of all, there is the sadness for the unsaved, those who have already gone and those who still exist who do not believe yet. We need to experience that sadness and not wipe it away or dilute it. But then there's another way that we can interpret it as well or apply it, I should say. There's a second way that we can apply it. So first is the Spiritual application, which is a legitimate form of grief for those who do not believe, those who do not trust. But then the second way is grief over a nation, our nation, whatever nation you're part of. For most of us here, that would be the United States of America. It's, a, it's an exceptional nation. There's no doubt about it. It is wholly unique and different. It's not perfect, but yet it is, it is a place founded with unique principles and most of those principles have stood the test of time. And we still receive the benefits of those founding principles, even right now in real time. So it is very normal to deeply grieve for the future of a nation in decline. Uh, th this is the grief that Micah was going through. All the prophets grieved for their nation as they saw it slip away, slowly, arrogantly, 
with so much pride. And so it's normal to deeply grieve for the future of a nation that is in decline. A few months ago, I preached through Revelation chapter 18, um, which featured the um, destruction of the system of Babylon, not just the nation of Babylon, but the destruction of this long-time eternal opposition to the goals and the leadership of the one true God, Babylon. And Babylon would collapse. John spends two chapters talking about it of the book of Revelation. It must mean something if he spends that much time talking about the future destruction of this system of opposition to the one true God. And I also reported to you that there was a British sociologist in the 1930s named J.D. Unwin who studied, spent a lot of time studying 80 empires and nations. And um, he came to this conclusion that when these when these um, characteristics take over a nation or an empire, they have about two generations of existence left, and then every one of those 80 nations or empires has collapsed. They are the rejection of heterosexual monogamy. Secondly, the rejection of rational thought. Thirdly, a belief in a god. It doesn't have to be Christianity. It's just a religious moral system of some type. All of those characteristics, if a nation, state, or empire takes on those characteristics, those beliefs, they have about 75 years before they are completely gone. That's Exhibit A. Exhibit B is one of the most widely read books of all time. It's called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire written by Edward Gibbon in 1788, a long time ago, 235-ish years ago. In it, he gives five basic reasons why that great civilization withered and died, and these are the five observations why Rome fell. First of all, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis for human society. Does that sound familiar? And this second one's going to sound familiar too. Higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Thirdly, the mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more exciting, but yet more brutal and more immoral. Fourth, the building of great armaments when the real enemy was not without, but from within. And that enemy from within was the decay of individual responsibility. He wrote this stuff in 1788. Fifth, the decay of religion. Faith fading into just mere form without any heart. Losing touch with life. Losing the power to guide the people. You see, it's very acceptable. In fact, I would submit to you this afternoon that it is actually a healthy thing for us to feel sadness about the spiritual destiny of people, but also the collapse of a great power, the imminent collapse of a country that we love. One is spiritual, eternal future, and is probably in the grand scheme of things a lot more important. But the second one is where we live, and it means something to us. 
It's never been perfect, but we still love it. Many of you have fought for it. So it's acceptable to feel sadness for the destiny of your nation and also the fate of billions of humans in general, where they will spend eternity. The more lament, though, that we experience, perhaps issues forth the more compassion that we will have. And that brings us to a bright spot. Because the more authentic grief and sadness that I feel for the collapse of the nation and the possible destiny of billions of people, that sadness doesn't just stay as grief. It is eventually translated, hopefully, into greater compassion. And then I see that great, that, that small bright spot get larger because that compassion will help me to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not over yet. Every one of us in the body of Christ can still do something about it. We may not be able to control the outcome, but maybe we can influence it. Maybe not in big ways, but even in small ways, we can still influence what other people believe. I met with a wonderful man yesterday, a Muslim man, for three hours, and we talked about a lot of different topics. And he said, oh, we believe in Jesus too. And I said, well, with all due respect, I believe you believe in a Jesus, an Isa, which way they would call Jesus. But your, your Jesus is a lot different than my Jesus because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. So where you might see a different path to be reconnected and reconciled back to God, I see that path as only through Jesus. It begins with conversations like that. Communication one-on-one frequently in the, the, this group here, you know, four or five people, four or five hundred people on a Sunday, counting our views on YouTube, you know, that's got to translate into thousands of other people that we can influence little by little, bit by bit, as we show love and as we're motivated by the grief that translates into compassion. Hopefully that compassion translates into action and influence. Don't miss one opportunity. Take advantage of all of them. Allow your grief, your legitimate mourning, over the state of our nation, but also the state of the destiny of billions of people to be translated into action. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for the word of God which teaches us truth, the true reality of things. And so help us not be like Israel or Judah and just push away the words of this prophet but help us to contextualize it into our time and place, to feel the same grief for the same reasons that Micah felt, not necessarily for Israel or Judah, but for our time and place, our nation, but also for the destiny of billions of people. And I pray, Father, that our grief won't stay that way, but it will change into compassion, and that compassion will turn into action. Words interaction, communication, the conveyance of the good news. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. And then together, God's people said, Amen.